0: Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I'm here with Zion. Uh, also, our guest today is uh, Pastor David Rockoff. We're glad to have you here. Uh, thanks for joining us, Pastor Rockoff.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Hey, Dave. It's good to see you. Uh, so, Pastor Rockoff, Dave, and I—we used to bike together all the time when he was living in Kenosha. Uh, so, Dave, with that, uh, two questions for you. First off, is uh, the one I have to ask all the guests: Is how are you related to Jeremy or Abby Lightnin?
1: Um,
0: I don't think I am. Oh, okay. You've been you've been striking out with that one a
2: lot. I, I have been. We got to get some more of your relatives on. <laughs> and then so so like I said Dave and I used to bike a lot so Dave you had told me this a few years ago what is the toughest thing that you've ever done
1: the toughest thing I've ever done well that you probably, said you, you did a couple of marathons right did a couple of marathons I did walk up uh, it's called the incline in Colorado Springs it's uh, I don't know how many steps but they're kind of you just go up this side of kind of the start of Pikes Peak and uh, about a thousand steps or maybe. So that to me was, was pretty tough as well. But uh, I suppose maybe the toughest thing was trying to stay even with you on the bikes. I think that probably ranks up there as well.
2: Yeah, so I remember that Dave and I, we biked from Oak Creek, so south of Milwaukee <laughs> to Grafton. So it was about 50 miles one day. That was when we first getting into biking and then 50 miles the next day. And when we were done, Dave said to me, I've done three marathons. And that was the toughest thing I've ever done.
1: I would agree. Well, and what made it tougher was uh, we lost the trail several times. Uh, we ended up in Wauwatosa, going up the hills of Wauwatosa, which I don't know if we were supposed to or not. So um, it might have been a little easier had we stayed on the, the route we were supposed to stay on.
2: Yeah, I've done that trail uh, numerous times now, and I figured it out, so we don't go all (laughs) over Milwaukee like we did that time. All right. Uh, So tell us about your ministry out there in Michigan. Where are you, and what's the church like?
1: My ministry, I'm in Door, Michigan, which is uh, about 15 miles south of Grand Rapids. Um, We have a medium-sized congregation, about uh, 300 members. Uh, The pastor that I replaced was Pastor Steve Otto. He was here for 37 years, his entire ministry. Um, so, I knew him because I started at Wayland, Michigan, which was seven miles from Door. So, my first five years of ministry were in Wayland, and he was my circuit pastor. So, when I didn't know what I was doing, uh, I would always call him and ask him, and we got pretty close uh, together, played floor hockey. That was kind of the thing here in this area. Um so I learned a lot from him and a couple of stops in Wisconsin, one in Nebraska, and now I came back to door. Um, so replacing a guy who was here a long time. Uh, very simple kind of ministry. <laughs> Haven't been using the Christian worship hymnal too, too often or too long, rather. Um, which which Christian to... worship one, the red one or the blue one? <laughs> That would be the first one, the red one. <laughs> so you're you're only 30 years behind the rest of the synod. That, that is true. That is true. And we're, we're now using the second liturgy in that hymnal. So we're making our, our way through that hymnal. But uh, kind of a simple bunch. Um, Pastor Otto still lives in the area and attends church here, helps out a little bit. Uh, but it's been really good to kind of not get in the way of things and um when I do things differently than what he did, he doesn't seem to have a problem with that at all, and it's not a not an issue. So, um, so enjoy uh, enjoy coming to a smaller congregation. I've been in some bigger churches with schools, and thought this would be kind of a fitting fitting place to come. Um, a little less of a schedule, but still plenty to do.
0: Where else have you uh, served, and what other stories from ministry do you have?
1: I started in Wayland, Michigan. That was a very small church, but a good starter church for a graduate, about 150 members. Um, Spent seven years in Norfolk, Nebraska. Uh, That was as an associate, my first associate call. Um, I had a school as well, I think about 700 members plus a school. And then uh, went to Brilliant, Wisconsin. Maybe the hardest part about that call was it was 20 miles from Green Bay. And you have to put up with all the Wisconsin people and the Green Bay people. They have football season year-round there because that's isn't, like, isn't
0: that just isn't that just sickening?
1: It is. That really is. It was a hard thing. So, why, why is that so hard for you,
2: Dave? I would think that would, that would be fantastic.
1: No, 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 no. We the Detroit is is our allegiance, and and no matter where we go, we we continue to root for teams that aren't very good. So. Um, So I was there for seven years and um, another associate position and then uh, spent 10 years down in Kenosha, uh, associate position there too with a large church and school. So um, I've had some different type of ministries uh, and so again kind of glad to be in a smaller situation and uh, Doors is a really small town. My brother likes to make fun of me because uh, the only really fast food place in Door is a subway connected to a gas station, uh, so it has quite a bit less than Wichita does. Um, so I I tell them once we once he comes here, we'll give him the tour of Door, and it'll take about three minutes to get from the east side to the west side.
0: So Th- those of so, you uh, who uh, those of you who are listeners who might remember, we had uh, another Pastor Rockoff on about was it two months ago. Sure. Uh, I, roughly a while ago, and uh, that would be the brother John Rockoff of this uh, David Rockoff. So, did the two of you overlap in the Nebraska district? There, he must have at li- yeah. a little bit.
1: Yeah, he. I was. He was there the whole time I was there. So, um, we were in the same district. Didn't see a lot of each other, but every now and then ended up at a conference together. So, maybe that's why I took a call out. They did. I didn't know if that. District could hold two Rockoffs at the same time. So, um, I mean. So, one of the things that I wanted to
2: ask Dave to do, because when he was living in Kenosha, he would entertain us pastors when we get together, say, to play said. So, if you haven't played said it's probably because you're not German, Lutheran, living in Wisconsin. But you have to be all three kind of to, uh, or from Wisconsin to play Sheepshead. But we would get together and play, and then Dave would regale us with his shut-in stories in his shut-in voice. So I thought that Dave should share some of his stories with us, and then Jeremy and I will share a couple of shut-in stories, too. So what's a good story, Dave?
1: All right. This might be my all-time best shut-in story. I uh, had a gal in a nursing home. I don't remember her name. That's kind of the funny thing. It's as memorable as the story is, I don't remember her name. We'll call her Alice uh, just to give her a name. So it was about 4 15-ish in the afternoon and um, wanted to get the visit in before supper time started and usually found Alice in the cafeteria and that's where she was sitting. So I went over to her and sat down and Visited for a little bit. Alice didn't have all her faculties, really wasn't mentally uh, with it well. So, doing our little chit chat, and then they brought out the supper, which was a baked potato and a piece of fish. And so, the, the the gal who brought her the supper put it on the table, got it all ready. So, she took a bite of it and she goes, This is poo. That's not the word she used, but she, she said, This is poo. And I kind of looked at her and I said I wanted to be pastoral so I said well Alice uh, you have to remember all that we have is a gift from God he gives us all that we have so she kind of picked at it again a little bit and then she took another bite same thing same reaction same thing came out of her mouth and so then I said now Alice I said uh, if you talk like that and use that kind of language nobody's going to want to come see you and so she kind of just kind of sat there and then she looked at me and then and then she put her hand right behind my head like she was gonna cuff me in the back of my head and uh, so I just kind of tried to go on and I I opened up my bible started a little devotion with her and was was talking to her a little bit about that and and then uh, all of a sudden she goes why don't you just go why don't you just go home and then she goes, and better yet, why don't you just go to, <laughs> and and uh, I closed my Bible and I said, well, maybe we'll have a, a devotion another time. And then out of the blue, she was sitting in her chair and she just went, and she made a cat sound and, and put her arms up like she was going to claw me. <laughs> so, so as I, I left and said goodbye, the receptionist was, uh, uh, sitting close enough, and she goes, that was interesting. <laughs> so I'm not sure what uh, caused Alice to react that way, but uh, that was the first time I've, I've seen a cat at my visits. Um, my other story, I had a guy named Ken. He was in a nursing home, and, and uh, uh, I would knock on his door. He'd be in his room, and one time I knocked on the door. I said, hey, Ken, it's faster. And he goes, What? And I go, can we visit? No, I don't have anything to talk about. And I said, well, we can talk about the weather. He goes, no. So he closed the door, and I went to get a couple other members to take to the chapel, uh, visit them all at the same time. And so I'm wheeling one of the last ones to the chapel, and Ken's walking down the hallway. And so um, I get up to Ken, and I go, hey, Ken, hi, how's it going? And Ken didn't say anything. So I said, that good, huh? Ken went, smart Alec. <laughs> Although Alec wasn't the word he used. So oh. I guess uh, Ken didn't appreciate my sarcasm when I mentioned that it was that good for him that day. But so so those are a couple of my good show stories that I can remember.
2: Well, I remember for me, one of the first shut-ins I visited, I was a senior vicar in Whitefish Bay. So I was... Senior at the seminary at the time, and went and visited one of these ladies, and I didn't know her at all. And uh, she was in a nursing home, and we started going through the the liturgy and going through the confession of sins. And she stopped me. She was, vicar, just stop. I don't have any sin. How can I have (laughs) any sin? I'm in a nursing home. (laughs) (laughs) It just kind of floored me, and because again, I was I was brand new, not even a pastor yet, and I said, well. Uh, do you like the food here? And she goes, No, I hate the food here. The jello's always runny. I said, Well, do you like your roommate? She said, No, I hate my roommate. She always leaves her TV on real loud and shows I don't like. And then, Well, do you like your family? She goes, No, I don't like my family at all. They stuck me in this awful place and they never come and see me. I said, Well, let's just go with those three sins then.
0: And,
2: and then we, we kept going uh, Jeremy, you got a story?
0: Uh, yeah, and, and as I tell it, I want you to know that this is probably one of my favorite, uh, shut-ins that I ever served, either vicar or pastor at any of my congregations. Um, when I first started serving her, she, it was, it was two shut-ins. It was her and her husband, and, uh, th- they were always very generous. Uh, they were German-speaking. Uh, I had a, a German congregations and uh, members that I would go visit who were shut-ins that uh, were, were from Germany. And uh, to this couple was one of them. And the, the husband eventually died, but uh, they, she didn't die until after I left the congregation. And uh, they would always give me um, $5 for gas money, like in addition <laughs> to their offering, um, and then around Christmas time, uh, she would always they would always give me and she would always give me when she was a widow um, some, you know, some really nice Christmas gifts for our, our boys and, and my wife and myself. Um, and uh, so I want all of that to be the preface of and she was very sweet. She would always, you know, put out the coffee and the, um, you know, a little something, a little snack to eat when I would come to visit. So I always enjoyed visiting them very much. But um, it was one time. When I brought one of those Christmas bags home, uh, and you know, gave them to my wife and my kids, that uh, Abby said uh, later later on, she said uh, I found a Q-tip in one of those uh, Christmas bags, and and she said uh, I was like, oh really? And she said, yeah, it was a used Q-tip.
2: <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, well. Uh, Shelly, my wife was reminding me of this this morning, I had forgotten this story. So it was a number of years ago, we had a couple uh, that were living up on the north side of Racine, which is not like door because Racine is really long. And it's (laughs) hard to get from the north side to the south side. And they lived on the north side, I live on the south side. And uh, they asked me to go to the store for them on the south side, because there was a deal. And then they would pay me and I had to go and pick up adult diapers for them. And Shelly just reminded me of it is just the kind of things that pastors do for their members that people don't often think about. And then uh, that reminded me of a story that she had read on a pastor's Facebook page. Of And so I see if I remember this correctly, that uh, the wife had shared this story that a dear shut-in who probably has dementia had given her husband as the pastor what she thought was a candle and the lady thought it was a candle but when he got at home it wasn't a candle it was a box it was a box of ashes it was, oh. it was probably her husband's ashes so so the wife was asking well how does her husband as a pastor take these ashes back to the home without embarrassing the the uh the member uh, embarrassing the family and so forth but
1: uh, you got any other stories dave i have one and mike you'll appreciate this because it involves janice all right and, and you got to know janice very well as the uh, so janice is dave's wife yes the uh, the camp cook why we, when we went to camp so one, one service, uh, it was a Thursday service, we usually have about 30 people who worship and the sermon hymn had, uh, I used five verses of a hymn and the last verse that we were going to sing for the service was just the sixth verse. So I introduced it and all of a sudden I'm listening to Janice play a totally different song and I'm kind of thinking, what is she doing? And then she stopped and she simply said, and we use a projector so the words are on the, on the wall in the front. She, she stops playing. She points to the, to the screen and she said, those words are wrong. I go, what are you talking about? I said, Janice, just play the hymn we just sang because it's the same one. No, those words won't work, she says. And she's saying this out loud in the middle of the service. And there's a guy in the front pew. He's got the hymnal open. He goes, those words are Right. somehow whatever however she puts the hymns up on the in the little notebook on the organ when she turned the page after playing the sermon hymn there were two verses on the back page and uh so she was looking at verse six on that page and then there was a different melody on the opposite page so um you know when you're in a small country church you can kind of get away with arguing with the organist um, or the organist arguing with the pastor I should probably say that and um, so everybody got a pretty good yuck out of that and uh, as I made my announcements I mentioned that we would you know church for the next week and I said hopefully the organist and I won't argue about anything next week so um, she she got a little red-faced when she realized what she had done so um, there you go but she's a good sport.
2: Well, I was thinking too. One of my shut-ins. Uh, this is a lady that I would go visit her, and usually people are p- pretty excited to see the pastor, except for maybe your shut-ins, Dave. Uh, and but this is a lady uh, that there were actually activities in her place, and I would uh, my typical visit is like about 15 minutes of small talk, and then 15 minutes of devotion and the. the communion liturgy and communion five or 10 minutes of small talk again. And so 45 minute visit and I'm off to the next one, but this lady five minutes in she's that's enough. Get to it. (laughs) And this is the same lady that when I went to see her, uh, I poured out the wine in in an individual cup and she goes, that's not enough. (laughs) So (laughs) And then I put that on Facebook. I said, this is the first time I've had a shut-in say this. And then one of my teenagers saw it and said, Pastor, was that my grandmother? I said, yes, it was.
1: <laughs> I get bumped for bingo quite a bit. So, yeah. you know, if you come when they're playing bingo, usually your odds of, of getting the visit in at that point in time are, are not very good. So
2: you're right. Uh, I, have to ske- I have to schedule around bingo at the you one know, nursing home. You yeah. Know.
1: I have another good uh, church story, being in a kind of a laid-back church. Uh, We have a gal who can't take wine for communion, so we always put the grape juice in one of the cups, and then we put another empty cup underneath it so we know which one it is. Uh, The the lady who did that didn't know about that, so when I took the cover off, I noticed there wasn't one in there. So when the usher brought the uh, offering up, I said, Ken, tell Laura that we need a cup with grape juice in it and he said, who's Laura? <laughs> so I said, well, she's sitting right behind you. So I noticed he he went back there, and he was talking with her, and then he comes back before we're going to start communion, and he's got a little Dixie cup in his hand, and <laughs> he kind of looked at me, and kind of I could tell he was going, is this okay? And I didn't want to say, no, no, that's not right. So I just go, yeah, that's okay. So he brings me this Dixie cup, which I set up on the altar. I'm going, I don't want to give this lady a dixie cup for communion so i'm trying to figure out how am i gonna how am i gonna fix this so while we're doing the liturgy right before communion i took one of the cups filled with wine and i i took it and i dumped it into the easter lily (laughs) i I don't know if that helped the easter lily or not but uh, uh, so sometimes you get those kinds of things in the small church and try to figure it out as you go along
2: yeah, that, that reminds me that uh, of a sto- similar story at First Evan downtown Racine. I was in a Advent rotation, and at First Evan they have the tradition that the first Wednesday in Advent is Communion. And so I went over there, and it was a seven o'clock service at, and then our service at Epiphany at the time was six thirty, and I was over there at seven o'clock, and I was talking to the uh, Community assistant during the Advent meal before the service, and he said, "Ah, if anything goes wrong, just wing it." I said, "Well, I can, I can do that." Well, I get up there for preparing the elements during the uh, the Sanctus, Holy, 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 and then I lift up, uh, you know, I get pull out the chalice and then the flagon, you know, the pitcher for the wine, and the flagon is empty. <laughs> And and I have enough time to go into the sacristy to look for their wine, and they keep their wine locked up. So I had to wait for this for Bill, the communion assistant, to come up, and I whispered to him. So he left to go find someone, like you were talking about, Dave. Uh, No one knew where the key was to be able to unlock the wine. Uh, Thankfully, their pastor had gotten done preaching by us at Epiphany and got there just in time to get wine. Uh, for us. And we were able to make it work. I had to reconsecrate the elements and so forth for the new wine in the, in the flag and to pour into the chalice. And then afterwards, uh, Bill, my community assistant, said, you you knew how to uh, cover that pretty well. You just got to wing it.
1: Yep. Reminds me of a story about John. And I don't know if Jeremy was there during this time or before or after, but He was like on the last table of communion when he noticed that whoever prepared the cups for communion had pulled out a pitcher of iced tea instead of the communion wine. So he served iced tea for most of the uh, communion and finally realized it right at the very end that somebody had put the the wrong liquid in the cups. So it happens to the best of us.
2: There you go. You got Anything else to add with that, Jeremy?
0: Uh, it was a, that's getting back to the shut-in stories. Um, and it was my vicar year. And this one wasn't so funny as much as it was frustrating. Um, I, I had this devotion that, you know, you get, you, you work up a devotion and then you, you don't sh- share a new devotion with every shut-in. You, you go, you, t- you make the rounds mm-hmm. uh, with the one until you go, go through everybody in the shut-in list. And then get a new one. Well, I had this devotion about angels, and I kind of talked a little bit about the angels at Bethlehem uh, announcing Jesus' birth, and um, how you know maybe you'd think they were they would have been crying instead of singing joyfully because of uh, they know that Jesus is going to have to sacrifice himself, um, and yet they're they're so in tune with God's will that they uh, sang praises and and uh, thanked him for. Jesus taking on human flesh like us and being born. And I talked about the angels at the empty tomb um, and angels protecting us. And I got done. And uh, the the woman that I was visiting, uh, I think we even had had communion and um, had had a prayer and and closed the devotion and everything. And it was then, right as I was getting ready to leave, that she said, you know, I've always thought that when my loved ones die; they turn into angels, and and you're the first pastor that I've finally heard say it. Oh no! And I was like, I don't think that I ever said that, and that's not true. Uh, she said, she said. But I, I look up at the stars, and I see the stars, and I think that must be my my angel loved ones that have gone before me. And I I tried to correct that notion as best I could before leaving but uh, that was my vicar shut in story so you
2: didn't you didn't point her to the Lion King and how all the former angels or how all the former uh, lions that were kings are now the stars in the sky
0: <laughs> I don't do my theology based on Disney okay that's a good point
2: I didn't know if you were telling people that they became angels
0: I mean there are some people that write you know write devotions about the the Mandalorian and things yeah. like that but <laughs> there, are, there are people that can do that. You're right. Uh,
2: should we get into the gospel lesson, Jeremy?
0: Sure. Today, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. <clears throat> Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, what do you read there? He replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. It just so happened that a priest was going down that way, but when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite also happened to go there, but when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. When he saw him, he felt sorry for the man. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day when he left, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever extra you spend, I will repay you when I return. Which of these three do you think acted like a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he replied. Then Jesus told him, Go and do likewise.
2: So. Dave, Luke tells us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this expert in the law is testing Jesus. What do you think is the intent of the expert's test?
1: Well, I think he he was certainly um, basing his beliefs on the Old Testament laws. And so I, I think he wanted to see what Jesus would say about that. Um, see if he was on the right track, and um, maybe even then question, in some ways, Jesus' purpose as well, um, because if you can keep the laws the way he thought he could, then Jesus' ministry and what he was here to do really wouldn't be uh, as necessary as what others were thinking and and being led to believe, too. Sure.
2: I think someone pointed out in Bible study, when I taught this last week, in that if and I thought it was very astute, that if uh, Jesus' teachings on the law lined up with the expert and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's not all that different.
1: Correct. Yep.
2: Yeah. yep. So then, Jeremy, how did Jesus answer the man's question?
0: Are you talking about his uh, initial question or the who is my neighbor question? Uh, his, his initial question. Uh, he, Jesus simply recited the first commandment as, as we would know it. Um, love the Lord, your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, your whole being.
2: Yeah. Cause uh, the expert asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he asks a law question. And so Jesus gives him a law answer. So Jeremy, what's the intent of giving him a law answer to his
0: law question?
1: Um,
0: just that, if, if you're interested in doing things to gain eternal life, then here's what you have to do. Uh, the fact is, you're never going to be able to do it, but Jesus Jesus doesn't really get into that. This uh, legal expert is focused on the law, and so he's, he's fixated on doing. And Jesus is trying to show him that uh, if that's the language you want to speak, do, 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 then... Um, that's, uh, th- this is, this is what you have to do.
2: right? Yeah. Cause this expert's all about, like you said, doing, achieving and good works. And Jesus is pointing out, you can't do enough. And, uh, and then Dave, why do you think the expert then asks, well, who is my neighbor? What's the intent of that question based on Jesus answer of, uh, his law answer to his law question.
1: I think his his thinking was, my neighbor is, and maybe you fill in the blank with, my relatives, my person who lives next door, so people that I can get along with, kind of minimizing the law. Um, and, and Jesus is going to show that that's not the case, and that's not what's meant by a neighbor. So um, in the parable that he teaches, we see how the Samaritan befriends a Jew, which wouldn't necessarily, in the lawman's thinking, be his neighbor, um, somebody that you don't like, somebody that you don't get along with. Um, so I think the, the neighbor is trying to um, justify himself and say, well, I do this for this person and, and the people that he would consider his neighbors, rather than outsiders, rather than foreigners, rather than somebody who uh, he may not be connected to in any way originally. So. Dave and
2: Jeremy, have you guys, in in the places you've lived, have you had good next door neighbors or not so good next door neighbors? <laughs> uh,
1: mine for the most part has been good. Um, kind of funny, sometimes your neighbors you don't even really get that close to. Um, I've had some people that I've lived beside me that I didn't really even get to know very well. Um, so when you think about that as as that definition of neighbor, it would certainly differ from uh, the person next door that you were really close to.
0: Jeremy, this is the this is the point I always make uh, when I teach the Ten Commandments in catechism. That um, it's helpful to hear how the the German language handles this because. Uh, The word for what you just described is uh, Nachbarn, that's the person that lives next door to you. And that is not the word translated in the German catechism. In the German catechism, it's the word uh, next. It it means like next or the person nearest. Whoever is nearest to you at any given point is your neighbor. It's not just the people that uh, are on your same block. Okay. Yeah, because uh, to your answer to your question i've always had decent neighbors
2: okay well where i live now we used to have a neighbor that they were not very nice if our dogs went in their yard at all we got a call from the village uh or even the the village representative or even police officers coming over uh very different from our next door neighbor who bought that house uh where the other neighbor didn't want the dog going in the yard at all, this neighbor calls her dog Mia into their yard, invites her to come into the house. They have five kids to come and uh, sweep up any of the crumbs on the floor from the kids that they left over and all that kind of stuff. But the key is, and the reason I, at, I bring that up is, it doesn't matter whether the neighbor is good or not, or whether the neighbor likes me or not. The, the key that Jesus is saying here is, You or me, I need to be a good neighbor, not uh, whether that neighbor is good to me. And with this, uh, the reason Jesus is picking this here is uh, the teacher and the law, the expert, he's trying to narrow down the definition of a neighbor. So it's the people he likes. So then, Dave, why did Jesus in his story pick these three men, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, to be the main subjects?
1: Well, I think there's a <clears throat> there's a idea that religious people are going to help people. Religious people are going to do the right thing, and that's what this the first two guys were, the Levite and the priest. You would expect them to help, and they didn't. And then you have this Samaritan who, uh, you know, the history of the Jews with the Samaritans. They Avoided each other at almost all cost, and yet here it is, this Samaritan who who helps. And and when you think of what he did, um, uh, putting on ointments and and bandaging him up, and putting him on his donkey, and taking him to an inn, and saying, "Whatever it costs, you know, I'm going to take care of that." You wouldn't expect that, and um, I think there too, it's easy to help people. To, it's easy to to do the right things with people who maybe you're close to, or that you would uh, expect something in return, and this guy did absolutely the opposite of that. Um, And so sometimes when you think about religious people, uh, they're not always going to do the right things, which is, I mean, sometimes our members think we can walk on water, but we can't. And we have to sometimes remember, remind them, hey, we're sinful too. And uh, so we see that in their example, as opposed to the example of the Samaritan.
0: I was about so they, to ask you if you're. I was about to ask you if those shut-ins thought you walked on water. <laughs> but but he, here, honestly, actually, uh, I'm going to follow up on that because I would I would bet that they probably did think pretty highly of you, and and that's that's kind of why they they wanted. You know, they would say, "Go away!" Like like I I this I'm feeling too much holiness in my presence. Not that, <laughs> well, no, that, I mean that, like Peter with uh, "Go away from me, Lord! I'm a sinful man." Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it makes you feel guilty when there's somebody who's very noble, uh, that, uh, you look, you look bad by comparison. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. So, Jeremy, what's the point
2: that Jesus is making in this parable?
0: I would take it back to, um, I gotta find it again. Verse 33. Um, that uh, finally your good works come down to an attitude of the heart. And verse 33 shows that, uh, you know, the Samaritan could have done all these same exact things and done it uh, out of some kind of selfish uh, desire to look good. uh, Some kind of selfish desire to um, uh, require that this guy, you know, maybe this was a rich guy that he wanted to, have him paid back uh, in some way. Uh, and the Samaritan could have done all those things out of a selfish motive. But in verse 33, Jesus makes sure to show that his motives were also pure. He felt sorry for them. He had compassion uh, on the man. And um, that's, that's really what uh, not only the first commandment, but the ninth and tenth commandments have to do with that you have an, a correct attitude of the heart uh, when you do works of the law. Uh, and uh, then that's that's really only something that uh, Christ Himself can do.
2: So I'm preaching on this this text this Sunday, and what I've written down is that uh, Jesus is trying to uh, bring home this parable to this expert, and the expert, you know, Jesus uses uh, two men that the the expert would like and consider his neighbors, his friends, his buddies, the priest and the Levite who also works with the priest in the temple. Uh, And yet they're hypocritical. So he doesn't want to be those guys. So uh, Jesus then uses a Samaritan who the expert would consider to be a heretic and, uh, and then also, you know, not a pure blood uh, Jew. And so he doesn't want to hang out, be one of those guys. So the only other one that the expert can identify with is the guy that's laying in the ditch by the side of the road, and that's and that that's what I said as the point of this parable is for this expert who thinks he can be saved by doing the works of the law to realize he can't. He's the he's the guy that's laying on the side of the road, and he needs the mercy of a Samaritan. And then I apply it that. Uh, you and I, we're the ones who are lying right beside that expert. We're in the ditch and we need a good Samaritan who isn't nameless, but it's Jesus that he gets down in that ditch with us, with his incarnation of God taking on human flesh that, uh, he picks us up and bandages us, uh, with his word. He, uh, takes care of our wounds with the oil and wine of baptismal waters. He feeds us with his sacramental meal. He brings us to the inn of the Christian church. He puts us into the care of the innkeeper, the pastor. And then he pays for our additional medical expenses with, uh, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. And then as good Samaritans, uh, you and I, you know, changing the parable a little bit. Now we, well, we can be the good Samaritans because everyone else in our world, they're lying in the ditch with us and we want to invite them into the inn with us. And I preached that text uh, that sermon last week at the Caledonia campus. And one of our members who's older, uh, he came up and said, pastor, I never understood that parable until today, because I think a lot of times we'll hear preachers and teachers Teach on, well, don't be these bums of a priest or Levite, be the Good Samaritan, and they're very law-based, but I think it's a little different when we share it as the gospel-based. How can, for both you guys, how can we as congregations become better neighbors to those in the vicinity and the community around our churches?
1: I think you have to be open to your community. Um, One thing we do here at St. Pete's, we make our our facility available. We have a gal who teaches a Zumba class, we do blood drives, we do elections um, and have those on our campus, which kind of gets people into our our, uh, building to see what we are. But at the same time, we're also offering a service for our community uh, again, being a small community, I think that's a little more doable at times than in other situations, um, and, and that way, it also helps us to kind of know what's going on, what is the need that our community has, so um, it's it's simpler when you're in a small, small town, you kind of hear what's going on and what uh, people are doing and what the needs are a little bit easier that way, too, so for us, that seems to be a, a real positive thing. Okay. Uh, and, um, and then we can be looked at as a church that. Uh,
2: <laughs> Jeremy, what do you think? How would you answer that question?
0: Uh, well, you're asking about how to be a good neighbor. Yeah. Like the Samaritan. Um, I, I think you could take anything along the line here of uh, this whole parable and uh, any, if, if, you're, if you know about forgiveness and if you uh, have received justification uh, and, and G- you know that Jesus is your savior, then um, anything along the line of this whole parable would be a nice thing you could do. You could, you could support your neighbor monetarily like the um, Samaritan did. You could uh, offer first aid, uh, I don't know, maybe teaching first aid classes like the or taking first aid classes um, so that you're ready to do things like the Samaritan did um, giving people a ride like he was basically giving him a ride when he took him to the inn um, it, only only Christ himself is going to be able to do all of the things that the good Samaritan did perfectly um, but for the rest of us it's it's kind of like you you get to pick and choose Uh, any one of these would be God pleasing. Uh, There are lots of ways that you can show your Christian faith.
2: Right. And, and to build on what the two of you guys said, as a congregation, I think it is important to assess the needs of the community, but also then assess the talents within the church and try to line them up. I think of uh, one of the pastors and, uh, and our mission Uh, Mission churches in our district, he went into a congregation that had a soccer camp and they did that for years. And they never got any prospects from it, uh, any visitors to the church from the soccer camp. And then the new pastor had said, Well, why are we doing the soccer camp? And they said, Well, that's what we've always done. The previous pastor and his wife were good at soccer. Well, the current pastor. He and his wife didn't do any soccer, but they were, they were musically gifted. And so they changed it to a music camp. Uh, another church in our mission, uh, one of our new mission churches, uh, the pastor had written his master's thesis last year at the seminary on dance and, and worship. And now they did a dance camp in their uh, community in Milwaukee. So assess the needs of the community, assess the, the gifts of the church. But I think a lot of times, too, we only put it into the church and we should do this as a big group. But I, I think uh, I take this from what you were saying, Jeremy, is I think it's better if we as individuals are the good Samaritans. Uh, instead of leaving it up to the church as a big group, that we be the church as individuals.
0: And I'll just I, add to what you said that uh, again with verse 33 to reinforce, you, you got to assess the situation before you just say like, I think this community could use a soccer camp or I think this community could use a, a music program. Um, what did the Samaritan do? He, he first used his eyes. He, he, when he saw him, he felt sorry for the man. Uh, so he, he assessed the situation before um, just assuming that uh, however I want to handle this problem is the best way
2: And two stories that were in the news this last week just came to mind about being good Samaritans. One was a pizza delivery guy that was just driving by, and he saw this house that was raging on fire. He parked his vehicle. He ran into the house. He heard voices, and then he saved four children, and then they said, there's another one in there. And the smoke was so black. And the the fire's raging so much, he was able to uh, just hear a faint voice in the second story and go and find this kid and then jump out of the window with this kid and saved all five. Or there was an Indiana mall where there was an active shooter that shot and killed uh, three people and injured a few more. And then there was another young man, I think 22 years old, that happened to have his uh, open carry and then he shot and killed that man before he could kill others and those are instances of good Samaritans something that's unplanned but you're just there because uh this Samaritan as he goes by it's he, it's unplanned He just wa- he's just going by with his donkey and uh, going down to Jericho maybe from Jerusalem and then he sees this man and then he helps. And a lot of the situations that you and I come, in, come up against are not going to be planned. And then that's where our sanctification kicks in. Anything, Anything else there? you guys want to add to that? Yeah.
1: Just to add to that, the, the, this whole account fits in between what Jesus dealt with the disciples and their blessings. And then right after it, we have the Mary and Martha story. So how does the word... I mean, you just react as a Christian, you do these things. You don't worry about getting paid back. You don't, you don't worry about if this person is friendly to you or he's wronged you in some way. So you're not gonna help. You just you have that word in your heart and, and the epistle lesson is going to talk about the fruits of the spirit too. So the importance of God's word, not just as this law guy wanted to think he could keep it, know it and keep it perfectly, but that again the gospel's is what's going to motivate us, and and that's what's going to help us look at those situations, and then just say, um, you know, this is this is what I this is what I have to do. And uh, I think sometimes our people forget that we need to be strengthened in the law. We need to have that motivation. So we need to hear that again and again, that forgiveness and what Jesus has done, so that when we come into those situations, we're not going to have to try to analyze everything or think what's in it for me. We're going to do it because. I want to help, but I want to, I want to meet that need.
2: All right. Well, Jeremy, you want to get into the epistle lesson?
0: The epistle uh, we'll look at today is from Galatians 5, and uh, I'll read verse 1 and then jump to verse 13. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not allow anyone to put the yoke of slavery on you again. Then Galatians 5.13, after all, brothers, you are called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as a starting point for your sinful flesh, rather serve one another through love. In fact, the whole law is summed up in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What I am saying is this, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out what the sinful flesh desires. For the sinful flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful flesh. In fact, these two continually oppose one another, so that you do not continue to do these things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the control of the law. Now, the works of the sinful flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, complete lack of restraint, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, uh, murders, drunkenness, orgies, and things similar to these. I warn you, just as I also warned you before, that those who continue to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So Dave, as Lutherans,
2: we know very well that we are saved by faith, not by works. But as Christians, what might we be tempted to do with our freedom?
1: I think one thing we might do, we might try to do things to serve ourselves um, and think about ourselves before others. Um, And then maybe the other side of that would be, well, just don't think we have to do anything then if it's not gonna save us um, or if it's not gonna benefit me, I might be tempted not to even really care if I'm doing those things that I should be doing or not.
2: Jeremy, anything to add to that about how we might be tempted to misuse our freedom.
0: Uh, no, I think he summed it up pretty well. Are you are you ref, referencing um, verse thirteen when yeah you're looking for an answer from verse thirteen that you yeah use your freedom as a starting point for the sinful flesh that you, you know I'm I'm going to be forgiven no matter what I do and that's true but uh, that's I'm that's not my new self uh, pointing out my freedom, that's my sinful flesh pointing out my freedom um, and make sure that that's not the starting point.
2: Right. Uh, I remember there was a document that came out a while ago in our church body uh, about using our freedoms and then misusing them. And it talked about uh, how our sinful nature can uh, lead us to misuse and abuse our freedoms. And yet, I think what was missing in that document is that uh, it it didn't reference how we can properly use our freedoms as Christians uh, with our sanctified self. And that's what Paul is getting at here is as Christians living in Christian freedom, we got to be very careful that just because we want to do something and we uh, might be able to do it, it may actually be sinful because it's going against our sinful flesh. we also have to understand as christians we have a sanctified and holy self and we can use that uh, we can do things in the right way too Uh, dave and to what is paul referring in verse 16 when he says walk by the spirit
1: you know you always run into when you see the word spirit especially in the new testament if it's a capital s or a small s on spirit and and i think in this context here We could certainly make that a capital S, the Holy Spirit. So that's the life that is possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, walking by the the new man, following the will of God, as as the Holy Spirit has brought us to faith to learn to do that and to be uh, strengthened and motivated to do that.
2: So then, Jeremy, why does living by the Spirit enable us to keep from satisfying the sinful nature?
0: Because, uh, well, what Paul is going to say in the next chapter is that uh, the old self was crucified. uh, So that that old self is dead to uh, to the spirit and to our new self. Um, And. uh, Why does. Does does that does that pretty well answer your question?
2: Yeah, I I think that uh, living by the spirit. (laughs) You know, it means that we're living in Christ's forgiveness. It means, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but it does mean that we're forgiven, uh, that we died to sin and are raised with Christ. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's that we're no longer controlled by our senses. And I think, you know, we're living in a culture right now where I think it's very similar to maybe what what Paul was living in. Uh, in his culture at that time just people living openly according to their sinful self. Uh, everything that we're we're seeing right now you can't say no uh, otherwise uh, you're gonna get you're gonna get chastised, you're gonna be called all kinds of things and be canceled on social media and so forth if you say no to the sinful flesh uh, I just, just saw a headline to an article uh, just before we started recording today of how the CDC, you know, they were saying to, to all of us uh, for the last couple of years, you have to stay locked down because of this virus of COVID. And yet they won't say now to the, the homosexual community, uh, say, stay home and don't go to these orgies with monkeypox. And because they don't want to say no to anything that's what well, we would call sin, because they can't call anything sin. They're living according to their sinful flesh.
1: Uh, do we also see this text kind of frequently today? You know, it's it's this, this is my choice. This is what I want to do. I, it seems like I'm bringing that up a lot in, this, in some of our sermons of late with, uh, you know, the... Overturning of abortion and things of that nature. So that seems to fit right in with what Paul's trying to tell us here is that uh, we want to do what we want to do. And that's that's certainly not the spirit leading that that thought and that desire, but rather that sinful nature. And and so it seems that that certainly fits right in with what we're talking about crucifying that sinful nature because it's powerless, it's dead. And, and then, again, using God's word so that's that fruit of the spirit and the, all of those examples there can be what we're going to follow instead.
2: Right. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, God's will be done. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, your will be done. But how often don't we actually live according to our will? So, so Dave, based on that, when Paul says those who continue to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God what does he mean there because doesn't everyone sin
1: yeah it's it's that repetitive thing it's that using the the grace of God as a as a license to sin and then just say well it's no big deal I'll be forgiven Um, obviously we we know we sin every day but it's it's if I don't feel that that's a bad thing and I'll just keep doing it um, certainly the, the, the will to do God's will is what needs to be in our hearts too. And and yet what a blessing it is to know that when we don't, we are forgiven. And so that whole idea of I really want to do God's will and, and um, know that I'm forgiven, not that I just kind of do whatever I want. And then at the end of the day, say, God, forgive me um, without any sorrow, without any intentions of turning away from those sinful things
2: that we do. So then, Jeremy, what does it mean to crucify our sinful nature, and what can we do to daily crucify that sinful nature, and then harvest the fruits of the Spirit, like Paul says? Uh,
0: This always brings me back to uh, other writings of Paul. Uh, Well, even earlier than this in, in Galatians, when he talked about those of you who've been baptized with Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, but probably most uh, pointed would be in Romans six, where Paul says that through baptism we were buried with Christ into death. So actually, your baptism acted like a portal that that transported you back to Jesus' death. So it was really you, the old you, that was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross and that old, you stayed buried in the grave when Jesus was buried. And uh, the new self came out through your baptism with his resurrection, his resurrection verified your baptism. This is the way that Paul talks in Romans six. This is the way that he, that he talks in Colossians. Um, And so that would be, that would be the first and best way in my mind to, um, uh, have have your sinful nature crucified with Christ.
2: Right? That crucified doesn't mean just hurting, it means killing our sinful nature, every passion, every desire that is the product of our sinful nature, our flesh. Uh, just like Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sins. And then applying it to the gospel lesson that We were beaten, bruised, and bloodied by our sinful nature, by our culture, by the devil. And yet Jesus got down into the ditch. He got up, he got down out of heaven and onto the cross to be beaten, bruised, and bloodied for us. And just like he was crucified on the cross, killed, and raised to life, like you were saying, Jeremy, now we daily, uh, in our baptism and our personal and private confession, our corporate confession on Sunday morning, it's like we're being re-baptized, we crucify and kill our sinful nature, and then we live that sanctified life of the fruits of the Spirit every day, Uh, live by the Spirit. Anything else you guys want to add to with this text before we end?
1: Just one quick comment. One of the things I struggle with, and, and maybe other pastors do too, is to try to find ways for people to to, to use their faith to serve. Um, sometimes some people seem to easily find ways to do that in your congregation, and other times it's, it's not always so easy. But um, so to me, to be able to put those fruits to work and to find uh, practical ways to do that um, is always kind of a kind of a project. And when you get a new member. You know, where can I, where can I pencil them in? Where can I put them in the congregation so that they, they are serving and have that usefulness? So it seems to be a kind of a challenge sometimes.
2: But well, Dave, I thought, I thought sign-up sheets in the narthex work real, real well.
1: <laughs> sure, and announcements after church. Yes, those work too. Yeah, because we, we have a church picnic coming up, and nobody's volunteered to do the games yet. So
2: yeah, I remember talking to one of our our newer members. And they've been to a lot of different Wells churches serving in the military. And I said, where do you want to serve? And they said, well, let us think about that pastor. Cause all the 15 churches we've ever been in, we've never been asked that question. We are always said, this is a hole in our ministry where we need to serve. I said, well, you're gifted people. Sometimes it's, we do have holes in the ministry, but it's better if you serve, uh, you know, as we're talking about both the gospel and epistle lesson, where where can you best serve God and your neighbor in your vocation? If it's even something as simple as giving a cup of cold water, giving a, some food to someone, making a phone call, writing a card, whatever it is, greeting someone before or after church and so forth.
1: Good way to put it. I remember that.
2: Oh, fantastic. All right, Make sure you tell them I said it, too.
1: I will. I will. I'll give
2: you credit. All right, and Dave, I, just before we go, I'm, I'm planning a 100-mile bike ride next month if you want to go with me.
1: Next month?
2: Sure. I just, I just did one the other day. We biked up back up to my aunt's restaurant in Grafton. We did 115 miles.
1: I saw that. I saw that. So yeah. you, you inspire me, but I still have to get out the door.
2: <laughs> I, I, was feeling really, I was feeling really good about myself until one of my members – uh, he said, only 115, Pastor. And then he said on, on Facebook, I'll give you a break because you preached that morning. And then the <laughs> next day, I saw he did 215 in one day. Jakes. wow! That's, wow. that's, a, that's amazing. So.
1: Yeah, it is. That's way too far for me. Anything else, Jeremy, you want to add?
2: Nope. Okay. Uh, so this is Michael Zarling with Dave Rockoff. And the first to see the lightning of day. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.